This is The Legal Impact, the weekly show presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD and graduate programs. Learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire and UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. I'm your host, AJ Kirsten, and today I'm joined by Professor Michael McCann, Director of the Sports and Entertainment Law Institute. Learn more about them at law.unh.edu slash S-E-L-I. He's also a uh, journalist over at Sportico. We'll be discussing some of his articles again today, as we are wont to do. Thanks for joining the show. You got it, AJ. Thanks for having me. So let's start off with uh, an interesting Supreme Court case that was... uh, that was uh, had some hearings, the, I believe, last week, I want to say, on uh, Kennedy versus uh, Bremerton School District. What's going on with that? Right. So there was the oral argument for this case before the Supreme Court, and it involves a public high, high school football coach who left his employment after a dispute with the school district about whether he was allowed to pray after games at the 50-yard line. So he would after games, go pray silently for 15 to 30 seconds. Some of the players joined him and that became an issue for the school. The school thought that that, this, that the players felt pressured potentially implicitly to join. And they worried that the school, because it's a public school, that by letting him do that, it would send a signal that they endorsed his religion. So uh, that was the issue. And he said, well, no, I have a First Amendment right. Uh, Employees have a right to exercise their belief, including public employees. And that he argued he wasn't doing anything disruptive. It was after a game and he didn't obligate players to join. And that's really the, the gist of the case. It's really interesting, First Amendment case for sure, and public employment case too, I'm assuming also mixed into that. I mean, generally speaking, for a a teacher or a coach or something like that, like where does it lie where they're allowed to pray and things like that? So, and this came up during the argument, it would be one thing if he pray, if he had a desk and he prayed silently. That would not be considered problematic because he's doing his own thing and it's not involving others, that when it brings in others, particularly those that he has a supervisory role over, uh, it creates the, the, at least the appearance, potential appearance of pressuring other people to join. And that's the worry of the school district that by being the coach and Justice Kavanaugh asked. Yeah, that was the shocking one is the is the amount of back and forth with Kavanaugh around this. Yeah, Kavanaugh had some issues with this. He thought that and Kavanaugh's a coach, which I think is interesting. He coaches. He's a conservative coach. (laughs) Conservative coach. and, And but but he saw an issue where players don't know why they don't get to play and parents don't know why their kids don't get to play. So will they feel essentially that they have to join him in prayer in order to get playing time. And he acknowledged, Justice Kavanaugh acknowledged, there's really no way to deal with the many variables that can lead one to think, why doesn't my kid play? Or why am I not playing? Is it they're not good enough? Is it they're somehow not liked by the coach? Is there a reason why they're not liked? So it sort of invites a lot of questions. And he, that was an interesting exchange with Paul Clement, the, the lawyer, 
who was arguing for the coach. And Paul Clement's a prominent former solicitor general. He also has litigated on behalf of the NFL. He beat uh, Tom Brady's team in the, the Flake case. And there's also an aspect where he has his own personal religious group, too, that's that's part of this, right? Yes. Yeah, so, so the the and which and the court noted that if it's off campus, if he's doing is he can certainly do whatever he wants off campus. And one of the questions uh, came up that, well, it was Justice Barrett who said, uh, is it problematic if you had a, a faith group at your house and it's private speech, but can the school do anything about that? Could the school say the, the player, you're not allowed as a coach to have a prayer group at your house. And Paul Clement, the lawyer for, for the coach said, if the school has a concern there, it could create a rule that's neutral to say no meetings at one's house. But it can't be because he it's a faith meeting. So the rule, he argued, the rule has to be neutral. It can't sort of appear when the school becomes troubled by a, a coach exercising their religion. Because this goes beyond religion. It's, it's association and like, for example, the coach is a huge fan of a certain popular band or something like that and is having a fan club meeting or something like that. It's important that coaches aren't showing favoritism when it comes to, at least from a public employee uh, situation, that they, um, they're being even, even to, evenly treating all the students. Yeah. So one of the questions uh, Paul Clement sort of talked about, well, if, if a coach wears a Packers jersey, you know, will that make the players feel like they have to be Packers fan wear Packers apparel? You're right. It goes beyond religion. It really goes to mimicking the coach, right? Right. As a way of trying to curry favor. I mean, that's always the worry. And uh, Justice Kagan said the test really should be not religion. It's is this pressuring even implicitly players or students? And if it does, then that then the school should have discretion to not allow it. So whether it's religion, whether it's liking a band, whether it's liking a TV show, whatever it may be. And, and we know that students can try to mimic uh, faculty, mimic, uh, you know, coaches, et cetera. So it's not an unreasonable concern to have. How did the case make it to the U.S. Supreme Court? I mean, this kind of seems cut and dry where even the, the conservative and liberal justices seem to be uh, skeptical of, of the case going of um, of Kennedy in this situation. So I, I think it's it will be interesting to see how the vote goes. Right. Because even Kavanaugh might end up voting for the coach if he feels that this is fundamentally exercise of religion, that schools that although there's pressure, if we're sort of weighing competing interests, the worry he might have is that if a school can prohibit a coach from doing this, that it's actually infringing on his religious liberty. It got to the Supreme Court because I think the Supreme Court's you know, fairly conservative, right? And this is a receptive group to cases involving religious questions. But in this case also came from out West where, uh, the Ninth Circuit held for the school district, and that circuit sometimes has a tendency of being uh, reviewed by the Supreme Court. And um, 
I mean, there's enough interest among the judges, or justices, excuse me, to to sort of decide what what are the boundaries of a school in terms of uh, you know restricting employees. When are we? When do we think we'll uh, get an opinion on this? Probably in June. Yeah, sometime this summer. I mean, it could be earlier, but I, I think June is probably a good bet as to when we'll uh, we'll likely see it. So definitely subscribe to the legal impact because uh, June is always a busy time when it comes to all sorts of decisions. So we'll definitely have John Gray be on and probably have you back too, Mike, to talk about a few different cases that are uh, going through right now. Um, let's move over to something that's been just exploding in the headlines recently. It's Elon Musk, and you wrote an article about it in Sportico. You're right. So Elon Musk is, has a tentative deal to buy Twitter for $44 billion. And he has repeatedly tweeted and said that Twitter is going to change to better protect free speech, that those who have political viewpoints that are not popular with Twitter or with some are not going to be banned, that uh, I think the, the inference is that we're going to see some people brought back to Twitter, maybe the former president could be one and others. So his basic, so he's made this point and, you know, people either like or dislike the point. But the, the interesting part is, at least in sports, what will this do to athlete speech or coach speech? Will this, if, will this empower them to express viewpoints that they may otherwise have been reticent to share? And I wrote a short story saying, that's fine, they can do that, but they still have all sorts of contractual obligations, right? They have lucrative contracts that contain terms that restrict their ability to offer uh, controversial remarks. Sometimes it's in employment contracts and it's very vaguely worded. Sometimes it's in morals clauses and endorsement deals, athlete endorsement deals. So it's true that people may feel that they can speak more freely on Twitter, but they may have other obligations, namely employment. And maybe this will come up also with academic stuff. There may be schools that tell students, uh, be careful what you tweet or put on social media. We know that already happens, but you know, there, there are other constituencies that can weigh in. Yeah, this has been um, an interesting way social media has worked is basically everyone's on Twitter, face, Facebook, and LinkedIn, the, and Instagram. Those are like the big ones when you're talking about you're writing out th- comments that are there for the world to see. And the fringe platforms like your your gabs and your getters and stuff like that tend to be more in Reddit <laughs> or a little more fringe and people are a little more, say, uh, just say defamatory. I don't know. <laughs> There's all sorts of ways of phrasing that. Um, where, where maybe those sort of comments might have gone there in a more anonymous format where a lot of the more mainstream formats, you're speaking as you. And this has been problems, especially with regards to the NBA, with uh, China and such. Right. And we know that I mean, even fairly har- seemingly harmless comments about, I mean, Daryl Morey, the, the, uh, leader of the Philadelphia 76ers, but when he ran the Houston Rockets got in trouble because he retweeted a pro-democracy tweet about Hong Kong. And it wasn't, it was, it looked pretty innocuous. It wasn't any, it didn't have any swears in it. It wasn't, honestly, you'd look at it and not think twice about it. It just was kind of there, like a lot of tweets. And yet it caused all sorts of problems for him because the NBA does business in China 
and China objected to the leader of one of the teams expressing a political viewpoint that it found hostile and that created all sorts of fallout for the NBA, including losing a lot of money in terms of business with China. So it's a reminder that we have free speech in general. The government can't prosecute us for generally speaking. I mean, there are certain exceptions, but generally speaking, we can't, we can say what we want, but that doesn't mean that our employers, that others with whom we're in contract afford us the same freedom. And as someone who's in the sports legal field for basically during the explosion of social media, it must have been it must have been really exciting and interesting to see all the the different ways contracts and stuff maybe starting to uh, really consider what athletes or owners and managers and such might be using social media to do. Yeah, it's a great question. It really. Traditionally, the agent had such a huge role with athlete speech, where an athlete might be interviewed after a game, but often in a controlled environment. Nowadays, obviously, an athlete can say whatever he or she wants whenever they want through social media, and the agent has less control. And there's, or the PR person has less of an ability to filter comments. There's no sort of sharing things in advance. If an athlete just wants to say something, they'll say it. So, and that of course plays into companies that have sponsorship agreements with those athletes where they don't want athletes saying things. And, and when Osama bin Laden was killed, Richard Mendenhall, a running back for the Pittsburgh Steelers who had a deal with Haynes brand, uh, men underwear brand, not, not probably, not, not a constituency that's looking for necessarily comments that question the killing of Osama bin Laden. And he questioned why Osama bin Laden was killed. He questioned 9-11. It was all sorts of things that that the audience for Haynes Brand's uh, products aren't going to like in general. And he, he lost his deal. He sued. And it was settled out of court. And that was an interesting example of where he used Twitter in a way that really he didn't say anything illegal. He expressed a, a viewpoint, a political viewpoint. We're allowed to do that as Americans, but that doesn't mean the, the groups he was in contract with felt the same. And it led to a, a pretty protracted problem for him. So in the last five minutes here, let's dive into the Brian Flores race discrimination lawsuit. The opening arguments kicked off, and I'm guessing we're, uh, we're going to be seeing a lot of new information over the coming weeks in this case. Yeah, so, so the, the argument, the first hearing occurred, and it's, it tracked what we knew going into it in terms of what's already been put in paper. The, the basic argument that the NFL has is that these coaches are contractually bound to arbitrate these issues, that they don't belong in court. And the NFL believes that all of the issues in this lawsuit are governed by arbitration clauses. Flores's lawyer argues that's wrong, that even if some of the claims might be governed by arbitration, not all of them can be. And, and the lawyer notes, if you interview for a job and you don't get it, you don't sign an agreement with that company, right? You, you didn't get the job and they move on. You, there's no arbitration clause because you happen to interview with someone. So that's the counter argument. Although in truth, if, if, arbitration leads to a dismissal of much of the case it will 
it will hurt the case. So we will see in the weeks and months ahead filings that try to clarify those arguments. Is this in front of a jury? It not, I mean, eventually it could be. I, I don't think it will ever get – the, the NFL doesn't go to trial. I mean, it's just – if this case gets past dismissal, I would be surprised if it doesn't settle. But we're, this is a long way off also because Flores wants this to be a class action. So certification of class action is its own process that take month that can take months, if not longer. And that hasn't even begun. So there's no there's no quick resolution to this unless they reach a settlement, which they could at some point, although during the hearing, both sides now part part of this is posturing. Both sides said, essentially, we're not talking. Um, We don't trust the other side. But that, that that can sometimes change. And race discrimination cases are are very hard to deal with in the courts because it's hard to find the evidence. Like, like there's numbers that Flores can obviously point to when it comes to the overall, like, volume of black coaches, for example. Uh, But it's really hard to find that paper trail of, like, we're going to be discriminating against you because your skin color is this way versus someone else, for for example. And, um, I mean, what ways are, are you expecting Flores to make his case? Yeah, so, and some of the other coaches have, have maybe better traction there, including the, the, the coach who got a job saying, oh, yeah, essentially, we gave a courtesy interview to this other guy, which suggests it wasn't a credible interview. But Flores's argument, the, the teams that he has implicated have, have, have at least publicly stated that they didn't do anything wrong. And, for instance, the New York Giants – where he said it, and this was this goes back to the Bill Belichick text saying congrats. Belichick thought he was texting Brian Dable, the coach who got the job, but he was texting Brian Flores. And Flores said, well, this was a sham interview. They had already hired this other guy. Well, the Giants said this was not a sham interview because we didn't need to interview you. We didn't need to interview to comply with the Rooney rule, which, we, which is an NFL rule that obligates teams to interview minority candidates. They had already complied with the rule. And this was also his second interview with the team. And the team says it had not reached an agreement with Brian Dable. He had not been hired. And the Giants can say coaches can back out of oral agreements. We A Patriots coach did that, Josh McDaniels. He agreed to coach the Indianapolis Colts four years ago, and then he backed out of it. So your, your point about having a paper trail is important because the defendant's going to have a paper trail. Right. And here the Giants have a paper trail saying here are five things that rebut what Flores is claiming. It'll be interesting to follow. Yeah, it will be. It will be. Professor Michael McCann, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Follow him on Twitter at McCann Sports Law and also get his articles on Sportico. We'll be putting in the episode description links to the articles we discussed today. Thanks for listening to The Legal Impact presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help spread word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Get the back episodes of the show and podcast links at law.unh.edu slash podcast.